Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 328th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Dr. Suzette Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland is substituting today for Dr. Erica Reamer, who's on assignment. Good morning, Suzette. Good morning, and hello to everyone. This morning, our lead story is about a hybrid CDI program at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, a subject that should interest you. Yes, it really does interest me, Chuck. I look forward to hearing from Dr. Megan Cotazzo. She's an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Pittsburgh, where she also serves as the medical director of CDI and HIM. Also on the rundown this morning will be case management expert Stephanie Daniels. She's going to be reporting on length of stay, LOS, as we know it to be. Yeah, speaking of length of stay, longtime former CMS career professional Stanley Nockamson is back with us today with his popular Reg Watch segment. <laughs> That's right. Stanley has a plethora of new regulations to report coming out of Washington. Speaking of plethora, Terry Fletcher returns today with highlights of her reporting on the thousands of errors she uncovered in her auditing of physician documentation. And the celebrity suicide death last week of fashion designer Kate Spade and globetrotting chef and author Anthony Bourdain raise questions about the high rate of suicide deaths among physicians. And that's why we asked nationally renowned psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick to uh, link the suicide rates of uh, suicide among physicians on today's broadcast. We have much to report, and we begin this morning with Gloria Ann Bryant. She has breaking news at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register now to attend a webcast with Dr. Erica Reamer on myocardial infarctions on Wednesday, June 20th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Gloria Ann Bryant. Well, hello, Chuck and everyone. We've had some exciting news from yesterday to share with you this morning. The National Center for Health Statistics under CDC has released the fiscal year 2019 ICD-10-CM code changes for diagnosis. I know this is good news to many of us, HIM, coding, CDI professionals, and others. There are 473 code changes in total. This includes 279 new codes. 143 revised codes, and 51 deactivated or deleted codes. Now, I do have a short article in the ICD-10 moniker which provides a few examples of changes such as in Chapter 2 for neoplasms, Chapter 7 for IN adnexa, and Chapter 19 for injury and poisonings. I'll mention that in Chapter 5, Mental, Behavioral, and Neurodevelopmental, there are some additional code changes, new codes like the new code F. 53.0 for postpartum depression and F53.1 for perial psychosis. Both these are new codes. Interesting also in chapter 19 for injury and poisonings, now we have some new codes for sexual exploitation. You may have heard a lot about sexual exploitation not only in the news, but in our healthcare circle as well. So there are a series of some new codes in the T. 74.5 series and the C T 74.6. 
and we'll have to be watching and taking a look at those. Well, with new codes, of course, coding staff, coding management, coding auditors, these are changes we need to review and learn. We'll look forward to educational opportunities coming over the next months from professional associations like AHIMA and CHIA, as well as vendors and other companies. These are always a valuable making sure we have webinars and seminars covering the code changes. And I might say I do like getting these changes released early. And we now have more time. Typically, we see these around January, uh, excuse me, August 1st, but now we have them earlier. So we have more time to study them, go through them, and prepare for October 1st. Now, in the changes that we were released, we did not see anything yet on the official coding guidelines. Those typically come up in later in July around the 1st of August. So we're going to have to stay tuned on that one as well to see if there's any official guideline changes for CM. Now remember that these codes I'm talking about, the 2019 codes, start October 1st and go through September 30th of 2019. Thank you. Thank you very much, Glorianne. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is the past president of the California Health Information Association. Glorianne has more than 40 years of HIM experience. Thanks again, Glorianne. It's Tuesday. It's June 12, 2018, and you're listening to the 328th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Today's Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you by ICD University. Now, you and your team can benefit from exclusive ICD-10 educational webcasts from the industry's experts while learning continuing education units. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor webcast portal. Learn about the most important healthcare topics from the industry's most knowledgeable thought leaders. You and your team will have access to more than 40 carefully curated educational webcasts on crucially important topics such as CNM, sepsis, COPD, CHF, HCCs, outpatient CDI, and myocardial infarctions. Leading the webcasts are some of the most respected thought leaders in healthcare, Gloriane Bryant, Deb Greider, Rose Dunn, and Dr. Erica Reamer. Subscribe today. For more information on the ICD-10 Monitor webcast portal, simply go to the Handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday console. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Nationally recognized coding and documentation authority Terry Fletcher now joins us with an update on the thousands of medical records she's audited. Here now is Terry Fletcher. Thank you, Chuck. The final part of our series, An Auditor's Perspective on ENM, I want to wrap up the series and remind everyone on the importance of complete documentation, the pitfalls that are just waiting to happen if you're not careful, and making sure that nothing is assumed in the world of coding and documentation. Now, there may be some regulated defaults that, we, that we've seen in ICD-10-CM, but as far as evaluation and management services are concerned, there is a lot of black and white. If it's not documented, it's not done. I know you've heard this phrase before, probably at nauseum, but lately when I've audited, I've noticed that there's a lack of physician and providers just um, taking the time to go back to the basics and follow the general principles of E&M documentation. Clear and concise medical record documentation is critical to providing patients with quality care and is required for you to receive accurate and timely payment for furnished services. Medical records are there to chronologically report the care a patient received and record pertinent facts, findings, observations about the patient's health history. 
Medical record documentation, again, helps the physicians and other healthcare professionals evaluate and plan the patient's immediate, treat, immediate treatment and monitor the patient's health over time. Healthcare payers also require reasonable documentation to ensure that the service is consistent with the patient's insurance coverage and to validate not only the medical necessity and appropriateness of E&M services, but also the diagnostic and therapeutic services provided, and also that the services were furnished that were accurately reported. While E&M services vary in several ways, uh, the nature and amount of physician work required, these general principles help to ensure that medical record documentation for all services is appropriate. So just to recap, the medical record should be complete and legible. The documentation of each patient encounter should include that reason for the encounter and the relevant history, physical exam findings, and prior diagnostic test results. And a reminder that if the chief complaint is a chronic condition, which is also allowable as a chief complaint entry, the one word that's always missed by a lot of uh, entry uh, issues is the chronic condition. You have to have the status of that chronic condition. So I found that most providers that forego the center symptom complaint or th- and they tend to go to this chronic condition or three chronic conditions forget the status of that condition and then it would not count as a chief complaint. You also want to include the assessment, clinical impression and diagnosis, uh, medical plan of care, date and legible identity of the observer, and payers now, including Medicare, are checking for not only legible signatures or electronic signatures, but the authentication of the record. It means they want the provider to say, you read it, you performed it, you dictated it, and you stand by it. Not that it was passed off in a fill-in-the-blank populated field to the ancillary staff, which I see a lot. If the rationale for ordering diagnostic and ancillary services is not documented, then it should be easily inferred in the record. Recently, I received an email from a practice coder saying she is seeing a lot of ICD-10 codes reported for ordered diagnostic tests, but she's not finding it in the record because she thinks they're being reported because they're more likely the payable diagnosis. And is that okay? Well, I think we all know their answer to that, and that would be no. So past and present diagnosis should be accessible to the treating and or consulting physician, and again, appropriate health risk factors should be identified. The patient's progress, response to and and, uh, changes in treatment, and revision of the diagnosis should be also documented and not assumed. One thing that we fall into a trap for sometimes is adding wording to the physician record on what you think they meant to say when it's not really entered by the provider. And then diagnosis and treatment codes reported on the health insurance claim form or billing statements should be supported by documentation in the medical record. And then lastly, the most important reminder here to take away from our series on the pitfalls of an E&M audit would be the impact your EMR or EHR can have on your coding and documentation if it's not accurate. The most challenging step is to identify the areas of deficiency in the E&M coding tool within your electronic health record so potential pitfalls can be avoided by users. The EMR is a tendency has a tendency to add irrelevant information into the clinical record through templates or default information, and that's a big issue right now and can be a big factor in failing audits. So it's recommended that whatever EMR EHR system you're working with, it should allow all physicians and clinicians to override the system, not just to code higher if needed, but to downcode the record if their EMR is upcoding. So just remember, with any computer-assisted coding, they're only as good as the user and the information inputted. So good luck with your E&M audits. We hope we've given you some tools to pass your next audit. Pass your next audit. Tossing it back to you, Dr. Sutherland. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. She's a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant whose work is really very timely and helps keep uh, the physicians compliant with appropriate documentation, as she mentioned, not only for billing purposes, but also for continuity of care for the patient. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thank you, Suzette. And Terry, thank you very much for your four-part series. Now it's time for a regulatory segment of Talk 10 Tuesdays called Reg Watch. It features healthcare industry expert Stanley Doxson. So, Stanley, good morning. Uh, what's the latest coming out of Washington? Good morning, Chuck, and plenty of information from a variety of sources uh, back in our nation's capital. First thing I'll talk about is a request for information, and that's uh, where the federal government just sends out things to the public asking for uh, some information. It does not um, require uh, necessarily any response from the government or does it set up any requirements on the public, but they're just looking for uh, information that they may not have within the government. Uh, on last, last week, on uh, the 6th, uh, the Department of HHS released a request for information that asked for comment on an initiative to, de- to develop a work group to focus on promoting innovation and investment to provide for significant impact on the health and well-being of Americans. Uh, interesting that it, it looks like they're trying to figure out a way to um, get the private sector uh, to uh, do more investment and, and more innovation uh, for health and well-being. Uh, there's quite a bit that uh, the private sector already does. Um, I was a little surprised about that, but uh, if we can figure out ways to encourage more, uh, that's great. Uh, the second item I'll talk about is uh, a White House request uh, for HHS to not finalize a particular rule. In the whole process of uh, producing regulations, uh, the, while the original agency writes the regulation, it goes through a number of clearance processes, and it last stop before publication is the Office of Management and Budget, essentially the White House's arm for monitoring regulations and making sure that uh, any agency regulation meets White House priorities and also doesn't interfere with any other agencies or, or work that's going on elsewhere in the government. Um, in, in this case, the White House has urged the Department of Health and Human Services not to finalize the rule that required hospital and physician practices to create standards and procedures to protect their employees' religious and moral beliefs. Uh, what happened was that uh, even there were 72,000 comments that came in on the proposed rule. Uh, the agency is still drafting the final version, but they asked the Office of Management and Budget if they could confirm, uh, to, to actually to allow it to confirm providers were both complying with the rule and then notifying staff and patients of their rights. But OMB, essentially the White House, denied both of those requests, saying that the, the department has not provided industry comments on how these changes would affect their business and and responded to those comments to see um, what the burden on providers would be for this rule. Again, this, this is in concurrence with, the, I think, the president's initiative to keep uh, burden on the public down. So um, HHS still has work to do before they can publish the final rule. I think that's a very um, controversial rule. As you can see, there were 72,000 comments on it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what what comes out from that. Uh, the, ver- the, the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, released their final rule on uh, practicing telehealth. Uh, this rule allows uh, VA health care providers, those with a VA appointment, got to be a- appointed to uh, serve veterans, they can provide telehealth services within VA facilities across state lines. Uh, this is a, a additional encouragement for the use of, of telehealth. 
uh, Medicare has been uh, pushing this. The Congress is very interested in, in telehealth. So uh, we're, uh, we're starting to see other agencies uh, get involved. So uh, veterans now have uh, access to uh, more telehealth services. Uh, another thing that came out from the trustees of the Social Security and Medicare Trust Funds was their annual report that now projects the Medicare's Hospital Insurance Trust Fund will run out in 2026, three years earlier than last year's estimate. I think this is uh, critical for uh, the, the government, CMS, to begin to address the issues with the Medicare hospital costs. Uh, I, I think they've been attempting to do that all along with some of the value-based payments, uh, and initially the pr uh, prospective payment system that was initiated uh, a number of years ago, but there's still uh, too much money going out of the trust fund, not enough coming in, and CMS and others will have to figure out a way to reduce costs, I think not only on the hospital side, but uh, uh, for all providers, because uh, even if you reduce hospital costs, what we've seen in the past is the tendency for other outpatient uh, costs, physicians, home health, uh, rehab facilities to go up, which doesn't really benefit uh, anyone. It just shifts costs. Uh, and then just uh, one last item, the CAQH index report for 2017 that, that shows uh, the progress that the industry has made in implementing electronic transactions will be uh, published um, and released next week. There will be a webinar uh, from 2 to 3 p.m. on June 14th, and you can look at that at the CAQH uh, website. Fascinating information. Suzette, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. Uh, that was Stanley Nockhamson. He's the founder of Nockhamson Advisors, LLC. Length of stay, LOS, as we know it to be, is a very hot topic these days. And with more information, here is nationally recognized case management expert Stephanie Daniels. Good morning, Stephanie. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck. Length of stay does remain a key metric as a barometer for patient flow, but total cost per case is fast becoming the gold standard in hospitals experimenting with new payment models. Nevertheless, during my travels each year, I meet many hospital case management directors who report they are still getting pressure about length of stay. They tell me the demand from the C-suite hasn't diminished and the same arguments used 10 years ago are still heard today. I'm sure our listeners know them well. The problem is these decades-old arguments haven't had the intended impact and another generation of case managers who, in many facilities, are typically charged with making discharge plans and executing those plans for an entire hospital population. And they learned the hard way that the job of hospital case manager isn't what they had hoped it would be. The fact of the matter is that length of stay is not a problem. It is a symptom, a symptom of two major variables, physician practice behaviors and delivery of care processes. Physician practice behaviors refer to all the decisions the physicians make regarding their patient's treatment plans, the interventions they order, the timeliness of their patient rounding schedule, or their decisions to discharge patients. It may be the refusal by a covering physician to discharge a patient over the weekend, or the lack of coordination between an attending physician and the consulting physician team or even the physician's delay in converting IV to PO medications and other behaviors that add non-value-added time the patient spends in acute care and naturally extends length of stay. 
Length of stay is also a symptom of the hospital's ability to deliver care to patients in a timely, efficient manner. Hospitals are notoriously inefficient, and there is a long list of common obstacles to efficient progression of care. We warehouse patients over the weekend waiting for a scheduled procedure on Monday, or it could be the refusal of an accepting facility to admit a patient after 3 p.m., or just consider the rework that has to be done when it's discovered that because the demographic information was incorrect, the transition plan had to be scrubbed and started all over again. Or what about the payer's delay to issue a transfer authorization, which they can do because there is no language in the payer contract to protect the hospital against its frequent tactic? While length of stay is seen as a financial issue by the C-suite, by rights, it should be viewed as a quality and safety issue. Every clinician knows that hospitalization poses risk and that excessive hospitalization poses excessive risk. The term iatrogenic is defined as induced by a patient, induced in a patient by a physician's activity, manner, or therapy. And iatrogenic disease is now the third most fatal disease in the United States. Inappropriate hospitalizations and the attending physician's decisions can unwittingly bring about iatrogenic disorders. This is the primary reason why physician practice behaviors and delivery of care processes must be addressed in the C-suite. When quality and patient safety become the cultural conversation in an organization, the problems causing excessive length of stay will be remedied. Back to you, Suzette. Stephanie, I think that was very timely. The length of stay issue is definitely one. I like what you said about that. It was a symptom. I know at the University of Washington, we look very closely at this as well as other hospitals across the country, and it really helped to chip away at that length of stay by looking at clinical pathways for certain disease states that helps to try to move things forward towards that discharge. Are you working on some of those kinds of things as well? Guidelines are absolutely wonderful. Evidence-based guidelines endorsed by the hospital medical staff is a wonderful tool to help physicians, the hospitalists, and their case management partners to stay on track. And it's also a strategy to remind the physician when they go off the guideline to document appropriately why they are deviating from that guideline. So it's a win-win situation for everybody. Right. And that documentation, again, then is ever so important, like we just heard from the last speaker. Thank you very much. That was Stephanie Daniels. She's the founder and partner of Phoenix Medical Management Incorporated. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, for your report. Reporting our lead story this morning on a novel approach to CDI is our special guest, Dr. Megan Cotazio. Dr. Cotazio is the medical director of CDI and HIM at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Good morning, Megan. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Chuck, for having me. Um, I'd like to definitely talk about uh, our CDI program and our hybrid approach that we have here at UPMC. Um, it's taken us about six years to get to where we are right now, and I'd like to share that journey with the audience. I think there's a lot of things that we've done that many people in the audience can learn from and, uh, and maybe replicate in their own organization. 
Um, as many may know, UPMC is a quite a large organization. We have around 30 hospitals, and it's comprised of different types of providers, including physicians, fellows, residents, physician assistants. Um, and we saw the value of using technology to help enhance our CDI program. Back in uh, late 2011, 2012, UPMC worked with Optum360 to develop a CAC and CDI program, and we implemented that in late 2013. In 2014 and 2015, we primarily focused on two objectives during that time period, working with and refining the CAC CDI system with Optum, as well as ICD preparation, which I'm sure everybody in the audience can uh, remember quite fondly. Um, once ICD-10 was over and early in 2016, we at UPMC sat down, we reassessed the operations of our coding and CDI program, and after about a year's worth of analysis and discussions and meetings, we decided to develop a central steering committee to guide strategy for our program. As we explored the options for our program enhancement, we examined the industry standards for CDI at the time. At that time, hospitals either had the traditional on-site CDI program with CDI specialists interacting directly with providers, or they were using a, a remote CDI program using technology such as one that's afforded through the Optum technology. As we discovered, each of these programs definitely have pros and cons. For the computer-assisted CDI program such as Optum, you definitely gain efficiency, greater chart coverage, and enhanced revenue but you lose the personal touch of the face-to-face -face feedback for providers. And we noticed that there was an increased risk of providers not really understanding the rationale for their physician queries. On the other hand, traditional programs that have on-site CDI specialists, the program had the benefit of one-on-one -on -one discussions with providers on documentation, but it wasn't as, as efficient. And as I think all of us with those types of programs have seen, with the advent of the EMR, physicians often aren't on the floors even doing their notes anymore. They might round on patients and go back to their office, so you lose that face-to-face -face time. So basically what we did, we looked at both of these programs and we decided to combine that. Um, up until that point, we only had about 14 CDI specialists um, who were working remotely. And what we did was we basically hired more um, who are working remotely, and we hired two CDI specialists who work on the floors. And they rotate throughout our hospitals and work with different service lines and help them basically with their queries, understanding the queries, and with education. And really what we have seen with this approach is much better physician and provider satisfaction with understanding the importance of documentation. We've had an increase in revenue and return on our investment, uh, an increase in our CMI and severity of illness scores. And overall, this, this approach seems to be working quite well for us, and uh, we are really uh, able to capture the medical complexity of the patients who our providers treat. And uh, we really think this program and this approach is achieving that goal. I'd like to toss it back to Dr. Sutherland. Thank you very much, Megan. That was Medical Director of CDI and HIM at the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Suzette, and thank you very much, Dr. Cortazzo, for being uh, with us today on Talk 10 Tuesday.
The celebrity death last week of fashion designer Kate Spade and globetrotting chef and author Anthony Bourdain raised questions about the high rate of suicide deaths among physicians. That's why we asked nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick to link the national rates of suicide with the suicide rates of physicians. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. Welcome to the program, and I'm sorry that this brings us together again today. Indeed, Chuck. But let's talk about what, if anything, may tie together the recent surprising celebrity suicides and physician suicides, as well as even burnout. Perhaps they are embedded in the comments of Andrew Zimmern, the American celebrity chef and friend of Mr. Bourdain. First, his comment relative to the suicide. The irony, the sad, cruel irony, is that in the last year he'd never been happier. Suicide, perhaps surprisingly enough, can often be a surprise to loved ones, as it apparently also was with Robin Williams, who we discussed on this show after his suicide almost three years ago. Deja vu. At first glance, it would seem like such celebrities and physicians have the good life. Indeed, if there is anything that we should take away from such suicide, it is this saying, you don't know if a roof is leaking until you live inside the house. Sometimes we physicians have the privilege and responsibility of being allowed deep inside. Best is to carefully watch for any unexplained sudden change for the better or worse, as well as people whose negative thinking continues to worsen and does not respond to reason. Though our national suicide rate has waxed and waned over the century, it has come to our attention that it still seems to come as a surprise that it has been increasing again over the last couple of decades, and these are decades that have had different political leadership. All this comes during a time when we have suicide hotlines, stigma is lessening, and pretty good treatments for depression exist. In my experience, whenever someone survives a serious suicide attempt just by chance, with good follow-up treatments, they feel fortunate that they didn't succeed. The challenge is to get people into effective treatment as early as possible and help them stay there. Now, we had on a comment by Mr. Zimmern that might relate to burnout. On what else he had in common with Mr. Burdine, besides the love of food, he wrote, Quote, we shared a very, very deep feeling of wanting to be off the crazy roller coaster, but at the same time knowing that this was our work, end of quote. That sounds so similar to physicians being increasingly frustrated with disempowering workplace conditions as healthcare has become more of a business, but plowing on because this is their calling. Physicians have had the highest burnout rate in the country, over 50%, and the highest and also increasing suicide rate, but about the lowest self-disclosure rate, primarily due to fear, sometimes realistically, of adverse repercussions in the workplace if their psychological problems were known. All this suggests that symptoms in society are important factors besides individual vulnerability and need to be addressed. Though most often burnout and suicide are separate phenomena, they may be connected in one characteristic, a decrease or a loss in the sense of living a meaningful life. Too little meaning, not enough hope, and too much psychological pain. Indeed, given that, one has to wonder at the power of the human spirit, as well as the effectiveness of psychiatry, that suicides are not more common, even though for psychiatrists, one is one too many. Thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally recognized psychiatrist and award-winning author, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and we are very proud to call Dr. Moffick the Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist. This morning I wanted to uh, recognize a long-standing listener, an active listener, that George Bancor of Florida Blue is, has retired, and we're going to miss his acerbic email messages to us during this very broadcast. 
will miss his astute knowledge of healthcare regulations that he would share with us spontaneously during this broadcast. At Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida, George guided and tutored his healthcare providers to become ICD-10 proficient. In fact, his providers were among the very first to convert from ICD-9 to ICD-10. As payers goes, he was an exception. He was supportive. He was empathetic. George Bancor, with his New Jersey accent, was somewhat of an anomaly in South Florida. He still is, and uh, he has retired in Florida, which might sound a little odd to you since folks who live in New Jersey already retire in Florida. Thanks, George, very much for being with us. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 228th edition of Talk 10 Too Soon. I want to thank everybody for being with us. Gloria Ann Bryant, Stephanie Daniels, Terry Fletcher, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Stanley Nockerson and our special guest, Dr. Megan Curtazzo from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Hope you're going to be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor. 